Today we are discussing the uh, eighth portion of the Apostles' Creed. There's commonly 12 portions that the Apostles' Creed is divided up into. We've been in this series now. This is the ninth week. We had an introductory day, and so we didn't really talk about a specific portion. We're now on the eighth portion. Last week we had just discussed the um, resurrection from the dead that will come about at the end of the age and uh, how Jesus will come and judge the hearts, thoughts, and deeds of all people who have ever lived, whether they're living at that time or whether they're raised up, and how that that judgment that we all know will happen, because it's in, in the Bible, Romans 2, 2 Corinthians 5, how that judgment takes place for us who have already been judged righteously by faith in Jesus. So today we come to this portion right after talking about the Apostles' Creed, after talking about what God the Father has done, it then describes what God the Son has done, and now it turns to God the Holy Spirit. And so today, the phrase in the Apostles' Creed, which we're looking at, is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. And the Nicene Creed adds, He's the Lord and the giver of life. So with that in mind, we're going to... Um, last week we saw how the gospel not only includes the redemption from sins, but also the empowering and impartation of the Holy Spirit to live righteously. That's the way in which we're judged righteously at the end of the age is end of the age is because of the good deeds which God does through us, and that is the central core tenet of the gospel. God's God's creation had fallen. He had done a redemptive work and brought them back to the place of fellowship. And now he's going to empower them to live righteously before him. And so this is uh, where we come to. We're going to look at the person of the Holy Spirit in a number of aspects today really quickly. I've got 25 minutes to do probably an hour of talking The first thing we're going to look at is the Holy Spirit is God. We're going to look at his role in creation and how he is the breath of life. We're going to look at the, um, very briefly, uh, a parable of, of Noah's dove as he sent the dove out from the ark. We're going to look at how the Holy Spirit from time to time would anoint people in the old covenant for a particular function or a particular ministry. We're also going to look at the baptism of Jesus and what had changed uh, from from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. We're going to look at what Holy Spirit-empowered ministry looks like. It's not just the case that Jesus was God and so he did miracles. He did them in a specific way for a specific purpose. We're going to look at that, how the Holy Spirit was a part of it. We're going to look at the torn veil, what that means and why that's important for us. Uh, finally, the new creation that that God was doing in the work uh that, that came in the book of Acts. And finally, we're going to look at uh, Pentecost. So uh, many of us are familiar with the creation story, uh, but one thing that we may not notice that the Holy Spirit is there from the beginning. The Holy Spirit, he is God. He's not, um, he's not subjugated to the Father and the Son, but rather all the members of the Trinity are equally Uh, in communion and covenant with each other, and they submit to and direct each other 
uh, through the promptings and leadings of the Father, and the Father communicates his desires to the Son, and the Son, being filled with the Spirit, does the Father's will. And there's this harmony that exists in the Trinity of God. Oftentimes, the Holy Spirit is neglected um, in Christian experience, but he is a person. He's often mentioned in Scripture as the Spirit of the Father, or or other times he's mentioned as the Spirit of Christ. But the biggest thing is that he is a person, and he is not an it. Uh, many many people in you know generation or two removed from the original Pentecostal movement or charismatic movement kind of have this notion of the Holy Spirit being a force. And yes, he is forceful and he's powerful, but he's not like the force in Star Wars. This isn't uh, a cosmic peanut butter spread throughout the universe. There's no yin and yang to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. There are evil spiritual things outside of him that are really spiritual beings. They're, they're satanic angels and Satan himself who've fallen from God's original purpose and design. But the Holy Spirit is not just, you know, evenly throughout the cosmos, kind of in and under everything in some way that God is everything. He's there, he's present by his spirit, but he's not in its substance. You know, in Star Wars, if you're familiar with it, they think of this thing called the life force and you know, the quote is that it binds everything together and it upholds and sustains stuff. And we know that God does that, but it's not the same idea at all. And so I I think it's really important. You know, this may seem ridiculous that we're talking about the force, but it's really important. We do not believe in an Eastern mysticism view of spiritual things. It's not just the Holy Spirit kind of floating about throughout all matter in the cosmos. Um, the Holy Spirit in the Word of God in Scripture is often re- uh, depicted or shown or demonstrated as a dove. The word for spirit in the Hebrew is the same word that they have for the spirit or cool of the day in Genesis, or uh, breath or wind, the Hebrew word being ruach. It, it means to go forth or to, to breathe out. Um, so with that, let's get started. Genesis 1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. So in verse one, there's been a creation. And then there's an evaluation. Verse two, the earth was without form and void. So there was some work that God did in creating the earth. And then it is this voidless thing. And it's, you can imagine the globe without any of the uh, continents on it, just void and, and, you know, not finished. And darkness was over the face of the deep. So this, there's this notion of the, the earth is not yet illuminated. There's, there's probably water all around it. And it says, and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And there was light. So God had already created the heavens and the earth, the galaxies, the universe, and all that are in them, every every comet, every planet that exists in this solar system or otherwise, God had already done that. But in creating the physical universe and the the spiritual heavens, God had not finished his work in creating the earth. And so he sends forth the spirit to hover over the, the darkness in this hovering is a preparatory work that the Holy Spirit is doing. 
The spirit hovers over the lifeless and void planet Earth, transforming it and making it ready for the next step in God's creation. In Genesis 2, 7 through 9, we see the spirit again show up. Um, It says in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. So God had taken some of this ground, which was some material, some raw material, and he, he takes it, he formed a man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of the good, good and evil. So there's two trees, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. Skipping a few verses, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So he put Adam in the garden for a specific purpose to maintain the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God had taken some earth and fashioned a man and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So there again is the Holy Spirit. He's coming and he's uh, moving over this raw material that's being formed and there's a, there's some creation and then another work that takes place. This is a pattern. Disastrously, Adam, however, committed a treachery against God and overthrew God's established order. He was in the garden to maintain and to protect it. Yet, however, he was the one himself who destroyed and overthrew it. And Adam, having done this, had had died a spiritual death. We all know because the scriptures say that Adam didn't die in that day. And this was even part of the deceit of Satan because Satan made the difference to Adam seem plausible that his, his death that he was going to die wasn't going to be a physical death. The Greeks have this word called thanatos, which means bodily death, but Adam died a death that was a spiritual death. And so in this day, Adam had died, and from that he was cut off from the source of life, and therefore unable to have communion with God. Therefore, God removes him from the garden and from his fellowship. So not only did the Holy Spirit hover over the face of the waters, but he remains active throughout all of human history going forward. In a Elihu's testimony in Job, many considered to be one of the oldest books of the Bible. He says, the spirit of God has made me and the breath of the almighty gives me life. So this is Elihu. This isn't Adam. But Elihu is saying, even the breath that I breathe is God, the Holy Spirit sustaining me. And Job himself earlier in the book has the same notion as God lives in in Job 27, two through four, as God lives, who has taken away my rights and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. You see, you do not exist as an atomic being out on your own, apart from everything else in the universe. You're not this island. The book of Job and the book of Genesis say that the breath that you breathe 
is actually uh, existing in you because God the Holy Spirit was breathed into you at the creation and that you inherited this from, from Adam. And so the, the upholding and sustaining action of the Holy Spirit as being the, the breath of God that gives life to us is uh, a vital thing for us to understand if we're to see the beauty of who this person, the Holy Spirit is. The Imago Dei is something that we mostly get today in the Christian life. We, we say that all human beings are created equal and that they have uh, equal standing in the eyes of God. And that because of that, uh, he loves them because they bear his image. And we, we really, we don't really mess that up often. We, we get it. Human beings, their frame is fashioned in the image of God. But we often reduce the Imago Dei down to just your body. But actually, the Bible says that not just your physical frame, but also your spiritual life, your, your, the, the thing that makes you human, that, that separates us from animals, is that God gave us a spirit, and God gave us a consciousness, and that consciousness was designed to have fellowship with him that those who were made in his image, he would have delegated rulership through them over the created order. So uh, real quickly, we're going to touch on Noah's dove. We're not going to, you can, this is like homework for later. So the, the earth was full of evil. Adam, after he left the garden, transmitted sin to his children, and there was corruption on the earth. And God was extremely sorry that he had made man. This is one of the very unique times in the Bible that it says God was sorry for something. God was, God was heartbroken over how far mankind had gone from his original intent and purpose. And it actually says in Genesis that the heart, the thoughts and heart in the heart of man were continually evil. So these people that had sinned, they were children of the devil, and they had gone so far away that there was no chance of redemption. And so God has to uh, remedy the situation. And he does so by sweeping away the wicked in a great flood. But Noah had found favor with God, and Noah had uh, been given instructions to fashion an ark, and the, the rains came, and and the waters rose and Noah and his family had gone into the ark and they were spared. So again, the earth is covered with water and Noah is in his boat and the flood is done. The rains have stopped and this earth is completely covered with water. And so what does Noah do? He gets a raven first and then a dove and he sends out the dove and the dove goes over the waters and he comes back and he doesn't find anything. And so Noah, a week later, does the same thing. He sends out a dove, he goes over the waters and comes back. And then he has this in his, in his beak, he has an olive branch uh, or an olive leaf, literally. This has become the international symbol of peace and safety for us. And uh, that's a little parable. And uh, you should see those things in the scripture. Anointing for a time, the Holy Spirit occasionally throughout all of old covenant history had anointed people from time to time for a specific ministry or function. And this anointing would come on them and then it would, would leave. Uh, Moses is a prime example, numbers 11, 17, and 25. 
And I will come, this is Yahweh speaking to Moses, I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on, put it on them. And they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. Verse 25, then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was again on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. This is the pattern of old covenant, Holy Spirit anointing for ministry. They would, the Holy Spirit would come and it would rest upon a person and then Somehow, the scripture doesn't really give us a lot of detail. Things would just sort of go back to the way they were. In Judges, this happens time and time again. In the account of Gideon in Judges 6, it says, But the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded the trumpet. That is, Gideon was a timid man and a very sheepish guy, and he was without uh, bravery and basically, you know, you might call him a coward. And the Holy Spirit came and clothed Gideon, was, was on Gideon, and then he all of a sudden has this bold zeal, and he brings the war to the Abyssalites. Whatever. It's a hard word to say. So this is the old covenant pattern. This happens time and again. Othniel, Jephthah, Samson. Saul even had this same experience. Saul was anointed by the Spirit. He went among some prophets and had been prophesying, but Saul resisted the spirit so much so that the Lord specifically in the scripture records that the spirit was taken away from him and he was sent an evil spirit. So believers in the old covenant were anointed for a time and then the spirit would seemingly disappear. This all changes in Jesus. And this is where this really picks up for us. At the baptism of Jesus, this pattern of the Holy Spirit anointing someone for ministry and leaving is broken. John the Baptist says that Jesus is the one who is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and in fire. And fire speaks of zeal, bravery, concern for the Lord's temple. And Jesus's job when he does this is to clear his threshing floor. Jesus comes to John and is baptized. He's He's baptized in the water and immediately the Holy Spirit comes and descends like a dove and remains on him. Let's read this. Matthew 3, 11 through 14. John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan uh, to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Why was it fitting to fulfill all righteousness? Because Jesus had emptied himself of the right to exercise his divinity in his walk as a man. While never being divided from the divine person, Jesus walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. He, he didn't 
suspend his God nature or, you know, divide himself from that, but rather chose to, because of his love for the Father, demonstrate the Father's desire for true humanity empowered by the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove. Again, here's a, here's a body of water. Now the Bible is connecting this to baptism. The dove comes and remains on Jesus. This is a new thing. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Jesus, while being fully God and fully man, chose to live his life and do his ministry being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And if you want some backup for this, because this might sound seemingly odd to you, take a look at the book of Philippians, also John 5, 30, where Jesus says, the son of man can do nothing in himself. Nothing is a really total word. I mean, he didn't say the son of man can only do divine works of miracles on Sundays and Tuesdays before lunch. He said, the son of man can do nothing. Jesus was walking and demonstrating what it means to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And the works that Jesus did on this earth, he said that we would do greater works. Matthew 4 verses 1, 10, 17. This takes place right after These are the next few verses after Jesus' baptism. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whereas Adam had fallen in the garden and committed treachery against God, and been deceived by Satan, Jesus, the second Adam, overcomes Satan, not in the garden, but in a wilderness. And from this place begins to demonstrate what Holy Spirit ministry is. Again, there's this, this wilderness, this land of Judea, is, is a land that's filled with total sickness and, and spiritual uh, uh, oppression. And this is what it looks like for the Holy Spirit to come over a region and to transform it. And after defeating the devil once in the wilderness, he began to defeat the devil throughout the land. Matthew 4, 23 through 25, this is again, just another few verses from this. It's a connected thought. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame had spread through all Syria and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. There is almost no words that the scripture can use to make it ever more clear that Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, healed every disease and every affliction and healed all those who were tormented by the devil. This is what Holy Spirit-empowered ministry is supposed to look like. So, when Jesus had died, in the Old Covenant, before Jesus had died, the glory of God resided in the temple. And when Jesus died, that veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the people of God, that veil was torn in two. 
And the reason there was a veil and the reason the Holy of Holies existed without access for the common people, the, the people of God to come into this place and to commune with God was because of the sins that the people had committed. It says at one time with Moses that, that uh, the people can't come up to the mountain, that God was there uh, demonstrating his glory on top of the mountain because the wrath of God would break out against the camp. And so there's, there's a reason that this veil has taken place. But when Jesus died and completed his sacrificial atonement, he paid for the removal of sins and therefore allowed God's spirit to go forth and to move from a earthly physical temple to a spiritual temple, the new people of God. In Matthew 27, 50 through 51, it makes this point extremely clear because of the proximity that in which it mentions it. This is one of the scriptures. The, the scripture only has a few ways of getting the point across to you. One is proximity. One is word choice. The other is repetition. We've already seen repetition today, but here's proximity. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, very next verse, immediately, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So after the resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples and he uh, imparts the Holy Spirit. This is my main point today is that this is, this is what I really want to get across, that this is the heart of the Father, that there would be those who are made in his image and filled with his spirit providing a living and breathing demonstration of the power of God to defeat and overturn the works of the devil. This is like a first fruits of Pentecost, what happens with Jesus in the upper room. And seeing what happens, having read Genesis, one cannot help but be reminded of the Father's work in breathing into Adam. In John 20, verses 19 through 22, it says, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And when he had said them this, he had showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad that they saw the Lord. Jesus again said to them, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. How did the father send Jesus to do the work of the ministry? He sent Jesus into the land to heal the people being empowered by the spirit. So what does Jesus do? In verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. That's phenomenal. I mean, Jesus is breathing on the disciples. And this is like the most clear way that uh, Jesus can demonstrate to to the readers of the word of God, that this new thing that's happening in the apostles, this is a new creation. This is a overturning of the work of the devil in, in destroying what God had desired to set up through Adam in the garden. So in Pentecost, this is, this is the full realization of what Jesus had just done to the, to the apostles. Because Jesus is filled with the Spirit beyond measure, when he's ascended and glorified, Jesus overflows to pour forth and breathe and give the Spirit to his disciples. And Jesus' baptism is finalized because John the prophet had said that he's going to come and baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so 
Jesus was baptized, and then his baptism is complete when he, in turn, becomes a baptizer. The apostles in the upper room were the first to receive the Holy Spirit, but they themselves did not uh, keep it to themselves, but rather they also followed the pattern of Jesus. The Spirit is, is a promise that God the Father in the Old Covenant had made for all people, not just those who are priests or prophets, but rather all the people of God, the slaves, the free people, the young men, the, the, young, the old men, the young women, the old women, those who are short and tall and fat and skinny and smart and not as smart. Every person, God has promised that those who are recreated in his image have the ability to have the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles in turn follow the pattern of Jesus. They themselves uh, demonstrate and lay their hands on those who then are prayed for, who have come to know Jesus and, and need to receive the spirit as well and so forth and so forth throughout history. And so my, my main point today is that this is our goal as a church is to transform the world around us being empowered by the Holy Spirit, and through that to transform the lives of individuals who then will carry on the torch for the next generation. This is what our desire is, and this is what we mean when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. You may have not known that you said all that when you were saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit, but that's what you're saying. You're saying, I believe in what the scriptures say the Holy Spirit has done in in being the agent by which God unfolded redemptive history and transformed the world around us. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your wonderful, good plan of redemption. We ask you that you would fill us anew with your Holy Spirit, that we would see and savor the beauty of your word, that you would uh, open up our heart and undo us with wonders in seeing what your scripture has to say about your great plan for us. We ask you that we would be mindful and that you would bring into our remembrance everything that we read in your word and that you would show us the way forward. Lord, we acknowledge that we are not doing greater works than Jesus. We ask for forgiveness. We ask you to remove the blinders off of our eyes that keep us from being bold and keep us from taking steps of faith and doing the works that your apostles had done in the book of Acts. God, we ask you to help us. In Jesus' name, amen.